Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Um, Before we begin, I just want to point out that Christ is the Cure is subscriber supported. And so if you have been blessed by Christ is the Cure and you want to help support the work that is being done for uh, these resources that are being utilized by pastors and congregants internationally, please prayerfully consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash crisis the cure and to shoot it to you straight my ideal situation is to be able to do this full-time producing these materials podcasts articles pdfs etc because i love the work i love it and it'd be great to be able to do this full-time and so if you are blessed by crisis cure and you want to be a supporter you can become a supporter for as little as one dollar a month um it doesn't seem like a lot um but if enough people sign up for one dollar a month then we're sitting pretty i also have a goal or yeah, I think it's a goal on Patreon that if I hit a certain amount, then I'll be able to launch um, Historia Ecclesiastica again, which was a big project I wanted to do. But between time, money, and uh, other resources, it's not viable. And so, again, thank you all for your support and listening, sharing, and I hope you've been blessed by the Through Nicaea series. We're going to continue on. And those of you who are drowning in the three episodes on Eternal Generation, don't worry, we are moving on to much easier topics. And usually whenever I say much easier, I don't mean that they lack depth. I mean that uh, they're conceptually easier, but they're also more familiar. And that was the big thing about Eternal Generation that made me spend more time there, is that it's not as familiar as it should be. Um, In fact, even sound theologians who talk about it seem to be less familiar with um, the, the historical discussions and be... Um, they tend to center around the Yohannan text, right, of monogamous and stuff like that. In fact, even going in, I had that misconception, and it took gracious like hours of reading and easily over, you know, fifteen hundred pages worth of materials, not including books, um, that made me realize that wasn't the case. That there was a much uh, more robust case to be made for why the early church held to eternal generation. Um, So that's all to say that this next few sections until we get to the Holy Spirit will be relatively more simple. And some of the episodes may be shorter because like I said, the episodes will vary in length depending on how foreign and how quote unquote easy a given topic is. And again, that doesn't mean that there's not depth there. It doesn't mean that it's conceptually easy necessarily. It just means that it's more familiar. So today we're going to be talking about um, through him all things were made, and this will wrap up the section on who Jesus is before it gets to what Jesus does, right? And so we covered, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of one essence with the Father, through whom all things were made, and that's where we're going to wrap up this block And the next block will be for us and for our salvation, he came down. Uh, So let's go ahead and get to through whom all things were made. And really, this will be a shorter episode in theory, at least. 
I say that as I begin recording, but you never know how it ends up. So let's just do it. Now, much of what came before this particular clause actually informs and frames what it said, right? The the creed points that the divine word or logos was the agent of creation, which, by the way, if you're jumping in on this episode, all the episodes that came before kind of build on each other. So there's going to be things that I assume that you know because of the previous episodes. That's just the way it's going to be in every episode. And I'll probably have to mention that every episode because not everyone listens to every episode. Um, this understanding of the preexistent word or logos as the means by which the father created the world would lead the church writers to focus on the word as the one who would be the means through which humanity would be restored. So because it was through the logos that all things were created, it was fitting that through the logos, all things would be restored. Um, so while much can be said in terms of various earlier forms of what's called logos Christology, and sometimes in, in modern articulations, there's this logos Christology that isn't biblical it kind of goes into spirit Christology, uh, which really does play off of some of the earlier articulations before this creed. Um, regardless, the emphasis in the fourth century is what we're focusing on. And within the fourth century, the question arose about the relations between the word, the father, and creation. Now, the Arians would argue that the word was the firstborn of all creation, according to Colossians 1.15. Uh, the firstborn was the first created creature of God designed to be God's agent. And the Nicene writers pointed out that the scriptures placed the agent outside of the created order. Uh, and to say that a non-divine being created all things, which is what Colossians says, would compromise um, the clear witness of the text. By being the means through which all things came into existence, and without him not anything came to be, according to John 1, 1-3, the word simply could not be in the category of created things. Thus, the word was preexistent and eternal, and there was never a time when the sun was not. That's the famous anti-Aryan clause. Uh, there was never a time when the sun was not. So what is the biblical support for these claims? Well, the, the proof text of the Aryans, um, which would be explicitly John 1, 1-3 and Colossians 1, 15-16. Uh, these texts were recognized by both Arians and Nicenes to both say that the Logos, or the Word, was the agent of creation. So they agreed that the Logos was the agent of creation. In addition, there was an understanding between the Arians and the Nicene writers that the Logos had a connection with wisdom in Proverbs, as we discussed in the Begotten, Not Made episodes, uh, particularly Proverbs 8, right? Sorry, my chair is... I need to get a new chair. If you hear that, that that's my chair squeaking, and it is so distracting. I've been... Told by my mother-in-law and my wife for like two years now that I need to get a new chair and I didn't heed their warning. Anyway, wow. Um, so the debate was centered around whether or not the word was a created creature or eternal. And anyone who's discussed with a Jehovah's Witness knows that these two texts and this argument exist within them because they're Neo-Aryans. Um, one is Pentecostals will deny that the Son is the word as well. The word is a concept for one as Pentecostals, but um, that's kind of irrelevant for our point here. So we're going to focus on John 1, 1 through 3, mostly, and then we're going to look briefly at Colossians 1, 15 and 17. So John's prologue begins with the parallel of Genesis 1, 1 and Proverbs 8, um, but specifically Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created. Um, so you see that 
um, in the beginning was the word. Uh, in the Greek, it uses the same uh, two words, enarche, uh, which shows that clear parallel. But this construction does not mean something like from the beginning, but rather denotes before the world was created. So it's before before creation occurred, especially in the context of Genesis 1-1, because in Genesis 1-1, God created um, the heavens and the earth, and beginning uh, denotes time, so time, space, and matter. What's interesting is that that NRK in the beginning is also used in Proverbs 8, 23-24 um, in the Greek Old Testament. So the ESV renders verse 23 as, in, in Proverbs 8, ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. So the parallels are clear. This is before creation. Um, and then John uses was. In the beginning was the word. And this was further places this perspective um, in timeless existence. In the beginning, the word was already eternally existing is what um, Murray Harris would suggest as a proper uh, dynamic translation. So John reiterates this point in verse 2 that the Logos was in the beginning with God. He, he just straight up says it again. He's like, just so you, just so it's clear, in the beginning was the word. And then in verse two, he was in the beginning with God. So what is this word that was in the beginning with God? Well, the term Logos had a lot of different usages. And so what exactly is on John's mind has been extensively debated uh, and particularly related to Philo and how he uses the term um, but the, the most reasonable place to look seems to be within the Old Testament. So in Psalm 33, 6, we read that God creates by his word. He reveals by his word in Jeremiah 1, 4, and he delivers by his word in Psalm 107, 20. In fact, if one was to read the Old Testament, you would find that there's a lot of instances where the word of God takes form and interacts with humanity. And you can see this particularly in Genesis 15, 1 through 7 and 1 Samuel 3, 4 through 8. But most relevant for our discussion here are those things dealing with creation, right? So Psalm 33, 6, as I said, it was by the word that the heavens were established. And in the Greek Old Testament, it uses the term logos as well. In Genesis 1, God speaks and creates by his word. And in Proverbs 8, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth, 319. And that goes back into that wisdom Christ parallel. Chad Bird in his book, uh, The Christ Key, a uh, short little book that's pretty um fantastic. He says that John, therefore, although explicitly using the language of Logos to speak of the Messiah, is implicitly employing the theology of wisdom. So this idea is that the Logos is an inward and expressed thought of God and the expression of the Father, paralleled with, of course, John 1.1 1, 1 and 1.18. We, we kind of discussed that. And going through, like I said, all of these things are built upon each other in this particular section of the Creed. So the Logos is also God's agent in many ways, according to the Old Testament. But of course, again, um, in regards to creation, we read that uh, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it. It has a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. And that is, I believe, oh, that's D.A. Carson. I thought that was Chad Bird. So looking at John again, after placing the word in eternity, in the beginning was the word. We read that the word was with God. And then following that, we read that the word was God. Now, this statement is before he states again that the word was in the beginning with God. So there's this clear distinction that needs to be established, right? 
Um, and many commentators have noted that this with, the preposition with God, is a idea of communion with God. And the grammar of John in indicating that the word was God is precise to ensure that no mistakes could be made. So first, John has distinguished the Logos from the Father, called God in this verse. He states that both are in communion with one another. So it presupposes two, two persons, while lastly pointing out that there is a oneness of the word with God. So you have the Logos with the Father, and yet there's a unity between them. There's a oneness between them. So Harris says concisely, John wished to point out what they had in common, namely their godhood. Further, like the Father, and equally with him, the Logos may be included in the category of deity as an inherent partaker in the divine essence. So we have two persons united in essence, what the word is, God is. And then what follows this affirmation is that all things were made through him, that is the word. And apart from the word, not a single thing was made, and that's in verse 3. This verse makes it clear, especially when we consider alongside Genesis 1.1 and even verse 1 of John. This verse states that all things, whether time, space, or matter, were all created through the word, further excluding the word from being a created creature. We have in the beginning, before time, space, and matter. We have him with God before time, space, and matter. We have these texts indicating that he is the agent of creation. And now we have that there was not a single thing that was made apart from the Logos. So while the word was, all other things were made. And while the word is placed in the beginning, all other things became through him. And Colossians 1, 16 through 17 and Hebrews 1, 2 will restate this truth in different ways. Um, Carson in verses 4 through 5 on John say, Life and light are almost universal religious symbols. In John's usage, they are not sentimental props, but ways of focusing on the excellencies of the word. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Many commentators draw attention to the formal, formal parallel in 526. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The relationship between God and the Word in the prologue is identical with the relationship between the Father and the Son in the rest of the Gospel. Both 1.4 and 5.26 insist that the Word Son shares in the self-existent life of God. Later on, Jesus claims that he is both the light of the world in 8.12 and 9.5 and the life 11.25 and 14.6, and both wisdom and Torah are commonly associated with life and light in the Jewish sources, and John ties them in with Christ the Word. And that's, again, D.A. Carson's um, commentary on John. So that's, that's what John says. John places the Logos outside of time. It's, the Logos is in a personal relation with God. The Logos is also equated with God in substance, and then it is through the Logos that all things are created and not a single thing was created without the Logos, placing him firmly outside of being a created creature. And so whenever we talk to, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so the text of Colossians is similar in its claims of John, but it actually expands a little bit by placing Jesus even more alongside the Father before creation. We read, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 16 through 17. So the seeming complication of Colossians is in verse 15, where the term firstborn is used for Jesus. That was a big point of contention for the Arians, and it's used by Jehovah's Witnesses to say that Jesus was the first created creature of God. Um, so aside from the logical problems this poses alongside John and the text in its own immediate context, firstborn here can simply mean preeminent. Um, and in this particular context, preeminence is placed in relation to creation. Jesus is preeminent over creation as the agent of creation. He is preeminent over creation because he is a creator. And this is seen logically in, in what the text says, because we, we find that Jesus is outside of those things that are categorically created in both John 1 and Colossians 1. So Paul expands this section so much so that there's no room for Jesus to be anything other than God, um, who is preeminent over creation. For example, whenever Job's witnesses view Jesus as an angel uh, in the sense of a spiritual being, not not a mere messenger. Of course, most people would assume a spiritual being um, because we don't tend to properly recognize that angel could be a messenger or a spiritual being. But that was a weird tangent. Uh, man, I'm just off my rocker today. I am so sorry. Um, anyway, Job's witnesses will say that Jesus is an angel. Um, but this is problematic because Jesus is the means by which... All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, come into being. All authorities, powers, things that are invisible and visible come into being. So we have yet another, um, we go from a general category of created things to non-created things to a specific category of those things within creation. And Paul encompasses all possible things within creation. Visible, invisible, all authorities in heaven and on earth. And of course, this would imply angelic beings. Um, the only way you can get into this idea that there is a first created angelic being who also became an agent of creation is adding things into the text of John and Colossians that simply cannot be demonstrated. Now, firstborn is actually used in Proverbs to denote an imagery of sonship, and firstborn is also used to mean preeminent as a special status as a firstborn, even when the child is physically not a firstborn. And you see this in the Old Testament. If you look at Joseph, he calls his youngest son his firstborn. And David is the youngest in his family, but he is designated as the firstborn by God. So quite interesting with Colossians is that we read that all things were created through Jesus, but not only were all things created through Jesus, but they were also created for Jesus. So, so some commentators would note that we see creation as the outpouring of God's love for his son. So these things were created for the beloved son. Pretty interesting. Um, as the inheritor, the firstborn, preeminent son, it's pretty fascinating. Anyway, so our applications... We already kind of touched on some of them. Our applications for this episode are simple. Jesus is not a created creature, nor can one come away from these texts and logically maintain such a claim without a lot of work. What we find 
is that Jesus is firmly placed categorically outside of creation. Now, to get around this, the Jehovah's Witnesses and their infamous New World Translation will add into the text. They add into both John 1 and Colossians 1. And the Colossians 1, uh, less people seem to know about that one, probably because most people, whenever they want to go to the deity of Christ, they go to John 1, 1, right? So their addition to Colossians may be overlooked. But in John 1, 1, they state that the word was a God. This discussion is more technical. It goes into Greek. Um, but we can just think through this logically. First off, would the monotheistic John concede of a second deity? What we find is that the Old Testament makes it absolutely clear that there are many gods, so-called, but there's only one true God. And if there is only one true God, then Jesus must be understood as a false God in John's designation of Jesus as a God. And then in the rest of John's gospel, we see this God receiving honor, glory, and worship against the Jehovah's Witnesses who would say that Jesus is a God in the sense of merely representing Jehovah. So we have covered a number of texts that demonstrate the deity of Christ so far, so we're not going to make this application redundant in that way. Um, you can go look at the previous episodes where we discussed that. And so what I want to say is this. If you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, don't get hung up on John 1.1 and the technicalities of that. If you do get hung up on John 1.1, point out monotheism. Just hang your hat on that. There are there's one true God and many false gods. If you have God and you have Jesus as a God, what is Jesus categorically? Now, sometimes that doesn't work. And I think it's just best to bypass John 1.1 and move straight to John 1.3. Because whenever we look at John 1.3 in Colossians, especially with texts such as Isaiah 44.24, we have a great position of saying, hey, look, there, there's more going on than what you've been taught. So Isaiah 44.24 states, I am the Lord, it's Yahweh or Jehovah in their translation, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So we face difficulties in insisting that a created creature was the means of creating with Jehovah. Because the text clearly says that Yahweh made all things alone by himself. And of course, Yahweh is the name of the triune God. So Isaiah 44, 24 with, Col with Colossians 1 and John 1 through 3 creates quite the predicament unless Jesus is one in essence with God as John 1, 1 postulates. And of course, we, we already talked about how in John 1, 3, it states that without him, not a single thing came into being. Now, in Colossians, in the New World Translation, you'll read this interjection of other in the text. So, the original text is, by him all things were created. But the New World Translation will interject other into the text and say, by him all other things were created. So, this allows for Jesus to be created because it, it opens up that door to, well, there was a created thing before these other created things. So even, even the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation recognizes the difficulty with not having that other in the text. Because by saying that by him all things were created, it automatically denotes that he is outside of creation. But what's interesting is if you look at the kit, it's called the Kingdom Interlinear Translation. It's their, their interlinear Bible with the Greek and English. And you can access it for free at jw.org. If you go look at that and you look at the text, of Colossians, even this interlinear 
recognizes that the insertion is not warranted. It's pretty fascinating. Um, it is a theological insertion, plain and simple. Now, some have suggested, unfortunately, uh, such as Walter Martin, that we ought to abandon our understanding of Proverbs 8 uh, because Walter Martin actually denies eternal generation. And I didn't realize it until like the other day that he denies eternal sonship, uh, which is really disappointing. He claims that it's a Roman Catholic doctrine. I don't know where he got that from. Um, but eternal sonship, I mean, I, I get it with eternal generation a little bit, but eternal sonship, he, he claims that sonship is functional and that there is no indication that Jesus was son before um, his incarnation. But really, whenever I was reading through Walton Martin, he seems to imply that we should stay away from eternal generation, eternal sonship, in Proverbs 8, because it can cause difficulties with Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but the abuse of the Arians of the text doesn't mean that we abandon the text. I, I don't I don't understand that in particular. Now, should you get hung up in Proverbs 8 with Jehovah's Witnesses? Eh, I wouldn't bother because you could always argue from progressive revelation. Well, we understood that this was a type and John tells us that this is who Jesus is in further revelation. So you don't really have to go there anyway. Um, we don't have to abandon texts and doctrines though because of other abuses. We, we examine them and we determine whether or not they're exegetically warranted, right? Um, that's what we did with Eternal Generation in the last three episodes. But we, we don't have to abandon text because heretics abuse them. Honestly, every heresy is going to have proof texts. But another issue with abandoning Proverbs is that it's clearly utilized in the New Testament and in the early church. The early church faced Arians in their prime. You're talking about when Arianism was a bigger threat then it's considered like one of the worst heresies, if not the worst heresy to the Eastern church. Um, and this is whenever Arianism was far more threatening than Jehovah's Witnesses are. But you don't see the Nicene Christians abandoning Proverbs 8, eternal generation, eternal sonship. No, they stand their ground and they defend it. So this is all to say that there's a reason why the Arians and Nicene writers both looked at Proverbs 8 and debated it. The reason is simply because there's a clear connection made by Scripture. And if that connection is made clear by Scripture, then, then it's a real connection that needs to be acknowledged. We can't just dismiss it. Um, does that mean that we need to debate Proverbs 8 with Neo-Aaron's? Probably not. Um, I think you can stick in John, stick in Colossians, and even Hebrews 1. That's another big one. Uh, I like John 12 and Isaiah 6. There's a lot of different ways you can take that don't press you into the Proverbs 8 discussion, which is a little bit harder because you go into the, well, is, is wisdom a type of Christ or a um, or is it Christ himself? And so on and so forth. So the big takeaway is that through Jesus, all things were made and not a single thing came into being without him. All rulers and authorities, but not only were all things made through him, but we're told that all things were made for him. Hopefully that gets you curious and wanting to go dive and study Colossians, which is rich. And that will be it for today's episode. A little bit shorter, not too short, but God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Next week, we'll talk about the clause for us and for our salvation. He came down from the heavens. Hmm. I'm not sure how I'm going to break that one up. 
I may do that as a line and then do and was incarnated by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became a man as a second. So we might break that paragraph up into two clauses. But anyway, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.